The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be talking about two medieval queens who came to power in the 6th century and controlled almost all of Western Europe, and none of us have ever heard of them. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, how did medieval women rise and why were they erased? We have an incredible guest, Shelley Puhak, who has written a wonderful book called The Dark Queens, which is coming out next year. And we are so excited for her to have a chance to tell her story. So for those people that aren't really familiar with periods of world history and need me to help shape where we are in time, let me help do that. So Rome has pretty much crumbled. Europe is in what people call the Dark Ages. Um, Some people dispute whether they really were as dark as people think they were, but nonetheless, that's sort of generally where we are. It's been about 100 to 200 years since Rome has crumbled, and we are in Western Europe. So think like Germany, France regions of the world. And this is very cool that women came to power there. So similar to other episodes in this theme, one of the questions that I'm always curious about is how do women rise in periods like this where they don't have a lot of rights, where they are pushed out of educational opportunities and no positions of power are actually designed for them. So how do they get into those positions? And in the case of these women, I want to know how they fell because I've never heard of these women and yet they dominated Western Europe. That's wild. So I'm so excited, and I would love if Shelly Puhak would introduce herself to you all. Hi, my name is Shelly Puhak. I'm a former English professor turned freelance writer, and I'd like to talk to you today about two rival queens, Brunhild and Fredegon, who ruled over most of Western Europe in the 6th century. And I stumbled upon these queens by accident, researching a completely different topic. But when I learned about all they had accomplished, I was stunned. Why had I never heard of them? And then when I found out that they were purposefully erased from history, I was even more intrigued, so much so that I started writing a book. 
The Dark Queen's The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World is coming out in the U.S. at the end of February 2022 and in the U.K. in April 2022. And even though you, too, may be unfamiliar with these queens' names, it turns out that they're everywhere and you've already encountered them. If you've ever seen the opera stereotype of the woman in a horned helmet belting out of song, you've heard of these queens. If you've ever read Shakespeare's Macbeth or Norse myth or fairy tales about evil stepmothers or comic books or read or watched Game of Thrones, then you know these queens too. And here's just a little bit of background about the two of them. After the so-called fall of Rome in the West, a Germanic tribe called the Franks took over what was once Gaul and they expanded upon it to create their own empire. And the empire we're talking about would encompass all of modern day France, but also the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Western Germany, and, and some parts of Eastern Germany too, parts of Switzerland and Italy. So it's a pretty huge expanse. And the kings who end up ruling over this Frankish empire for about 250 years were a dynasty called the Merovingians. They were eventually replaced by a dynasty called the Carolingians, who are much better known because their most famous king is Charlemagne. Probably know of Charlemagne, but you probably don't know if not for these queens, we don't end up with him. So here's a quick recap of Brunhild and Fredegund's rise to power. It's important to know that the Merovingian dynasty does not practice primogeniture. So when a king dies, rather than giving everything to the oldest son, all of his sons, legitimate and even illegitimate, can get a part of the empire. And this leads to competing kingdoms. So Brunhild and Fredegund are going to start out as sisters-in-law, but they come from two completely different backgrounds. Brunhild is a Spanish princess, and she has been raised her entire life to be married off for a prestigious alliance. And Fredegund, on the other hand, is a former palace slave. So Brunhild ends up being married off to Sigebert, who rules over the eastern kingdoms. And Fredegund has elbowed out the first queen to become the mistress or possibly the common-law wife of Kilperic, who rules over the western kingdoms. Now, Kilperic finds himself jealous of his brother's new prestigious bride, and he sets Fredegund aside and actually marries Brunhild's sister. After a lot of drama, Brunhild's sister starts threatening to leave Kilperic. The marriage is not a happy one. And rather than letting her leave, Kilperic murders her and three days later marries Fredegund. So as you can imagine, there is considerable tension between these two new sisters-in-law and the two brothers. And as a result of this murder, the two kingdoms go to war. Just when it looks like Brunhild's husband is close to finishing Kilperic and Fredegund off, Fredegund saves the day by organizing a daring assassination plot and having him killed. So after this, after a lot of political maneuvering and kind of various escapes, Brunhild manages to become regent for her son and rule in his name. And then years later, when Fredegund's husband is also assassinated, and as a side note, Brunhild is one of the credible suspects in that case, Fredegund also takes over as regent of her kingdom. And then at this point, the two of them wage a civil war against each other, battling for control of the entire empire in a real-life early medieval Game of Thrones. 
And throughout this war, Fredegan especially becomes renowned as a great military strategist, and Burnhound shows that she has a real talent for diplomacy. A lot happens in the interim during their long reigns, but just to give you kind of a quick overview of some of their accomplishments, both queens revamp tax policy, they build roads, schools, and hospitals. The rivalry between them and the efforts of Brunhild lead to Britain becoming Christianized, converting to Christianity. And we have, with both of them, the first recorded instances in Europe of women serving as judges in the royal court. So they're presiding over trials and they're issuing verdicts. A lot of what they managed to do was just absolutely sort of stunning in its scope. And I want to focus today on why these women rose and why they were erased. And the fact that they were even able to come to power in the first place has so much to do with the environment they grew up in, which was one of climate change and a worldwide pandemic. That sounds eerily familiar. But both of them were born on the heels of one of the largest climate disasters. 541 has been deemed by some scientists the worst year to be alive because we have volcanic eruptions in Iceland that lead to a more than two degrees Celsius change in temperature. They blot out the sun. They ruin the harvest. There's widespread famine and death. And also then we have the plague of Justinian, which is the bubonic plague, which ravages the Middle East and Europe. So these are really horrific situations to grow up in. And after the bubonic plague, you know, there's there's several other epidemics that they're going to live through. But it also strangely offers a lot of opportunities for women because so many men have been obliterated. There's a lot of social mobility. Things are changing so quickly. A great family might die. Um, alliances are, comp- you know, constantly being rebrokered, borders being redrawn. There's just a lot of uncertainty and it's really an age that favors the bold. So out of necessity, there are a lot of women who are taking over, whether that's family farms, whether that's towns, whether that's um, even ruling kingdoms. And as they're growing up, it's fascinating to know that around them, there are all these examples of other strong women ruling. There are other queens and other regents. So they're growing up in this world where even though it's very patriarchal, there's this period of time where women are able to sort of seize power and make the most of it. Another reason why they're able to rise is because they're both educated. So we know, even though this is in the middle of the so-called dark ages, that both queens are literate in Latin and also another language, either their native Gothic or Frankish. Now, this isn't so unusual for Brunhild. She's a princess. She's one of two daughters. Her father had no sons. And so both she and her sister were raised to be potential heirs. So they had an outstanding classical education. She most likely also, you know, learned to read or speak a little bit of Greek and a few other languages and would have been familiar with all the classical texts, poetry, etc., but we're not exactly sure how Fredegon learned to read and write. There's a lot of evidence that she could, but we don't know whether she taught herself. Somewhere along the lines, one of her owners taught her. And we don't know if this was highly unusual for a female slave of the time period. There are examples of other slaves who are also able to rise quite high in this society and also appear to be educated. Again, we know she's not the only one, but we just don't know how much of an anomaly this is. 
So in addition to these climate change and the pandemic and the fact that they're both educated, they both luckily are the mothers of sons. So this is clearly less threatening than a woman seizing power in her own name and ruling outright. They're always issuing orders in the names of their sons or in the names of other men. And there is at least the illusion that their rule is temporary. It's just for five more years or 10 more years or maybe 18 more years. And the other thing that really guarantees their success and helps them rise is just sheer longevity. They are able to outlast the competition, whether that's through great luck or just astounding immune systems. They don't die in childbirth. They have really strong stomachs and they manage to dodge a lot of epidemics. So in this time period, it's important to know that dysentery is a real problem. There are warrior kings in their prime just dropping dead left and right. So that means that there's also a real lack of alternatives. Brunhild, for example, serves as regent for her son when he finally comes of age, and shortly after, he drops dead, so she's regent again for her grandsons. When they die in their prime, she's regent for her great-grandsons. So she offers stability in a world where a lot of the biggest and strongest men do not. And both Brunhilde and Fredegund managed to rule for a really long time, longer than almost every king and Roman emperor who, have, who precedes them. So Fredegund's queen for 29 years and regent for 12 of those, and Brunhilde's queen for 46 years and regent for 17 of them. And for the time period, that's a pretty long run. Throughout their reigns, even though they're lifelong rivals, they also face very similar challenges and they deal with them in similar ways. They have to fight the misogyny of their own nobles and advisors. They have to deal with rumors about their romantic lives, um, innuendos that threaten the line of succession, for example, about the legitimacy of their children. And they have to be working mothers in the middle of constant war and upheaval and deal with things like pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing and really precarious situations. So we know a little bit about why they rose to power, but now talk about how could two queens who did so much and ruled for so long be completely erased. And when I talk about why they were erased, well, first, both of them died. Fredegan dies, most likely of natural causes, although murder can't be completely ruled out. And Brunhild is executed in a very horrific fashion. Uh, it seems as though it's probably unmatched, at least from what we know of recorded history, to this day. And for Brunhild to be executed in this fashion, she is betrayed by some of her own advisors and nobles. And these men who are very wary of letting a woman who has ruled for so long continue to rule, they ally themselves with forces within the church. The church at this point is having a real battle between sort of liberalism and fundamentalism and the fundamentalism and kind of the much stricter version of Christianity is winning out. And so these men within the church ally themselves with these secular officials, and altogether they decide that they're going to put Fredegund's son, who seems to be the only surviving male of a certain age, on the throne. But in order to accept this deal, Fredegund's son has to agree to certain concessions limiting his power, and he has to agree not to give any woman too much power. Once he's established, this man, King Clotho II, he moves to wipe both his own mother and his aunt from the public record. 
So he goes through and erases them from certain proclamations and from certain documents. And then in future generations, we get other women attempting to follow in the queen's footsteps and rule as regents. And the nobles have learned their lesson and they don't stand for this for nearly as long. And once these women are disposed of, we see this really awful smear campaign arising to further malign the legacies of Fredegon and Brunhild. And the alliance that brings down Queen Brunhild gives birth to the next dynasty, the Carolingians, um, who will, of course, produce Charlemagne. And this dynasty further rewrites history. I spent a lot of time documenting this process in my book, but I'm still really surprised at how coordinated and methodical it was. The two queens were positioned as being in some sort of lurid catfight instead of an actual war. And a lot was made of their sort of rise to power decades ago when Fredegund may or may not have had a hand in the murder of Brunhild's sister. But it was assumed that that's what they were still fighting about. Not land, not power, not influence, not legacy, like a man might, but that they were many decades later still fighting over some sort of love triangle. And the parts of their story that weren't contained in that catfight narrative essentially went underground and were incorporated into myth and legend. So, for example, the strategy of disguising your troops with branches as a moving forest was something Fredegund did in battle. And we see that strategy later borrowed by a Danish king, and then it's borrowed by Shakespeare and shows up in Macbeth. Or for Queen Brunhild, she becomes Brunhild the Valkyrie in Norse legend, and then makes her way into Wagner's Ring Opera, where she becomes this figure we know today uh, as the busty woman in the horned hat. Um, the expression, it ain't over till the fat lady sings at the end of the opera. I just loved researching and writing about these queens. And I think as more people have the opportunity to learn about Brunhild and Fredegund, they'll see how they've seeped into literature and legend and pop culture too. I also hope that they'll serve these two queens as a call to arms. It's so fascinating that during the so-called Dark Ages, we had two strong working mothers ruling Europe and in conversation with one another. Yet, 1600 years later, although we've had female leaders, they're always outliers. They're always the one woman kind of at the table with a group of men. And I think these queens challenge us to do better, to say, all these years later, we still deserve the same. We have generations of children that deserve to see powerful women learning from one another, reacting to one another in conversation with one another. Thanks so much. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? 
Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. And so I guess my first question for you is... Are you inspired by these queens and what sort of inspiration can you take away from them given how dark this story is? Well, I think it's really fascinating to me that in the darkest, one of the darkest periods in human history, women were leading. So um, particularly for me, I find it inspiring when we've been through some dark times (laughs) recently and there are certainly many dark days, you know, to come. So that sense of that maybe we're not, you know, kind of always in this trying to progress towards some idyllic future, but like able to go to the storehouse of the past and say, no, look, this is, this has already happened 1600 years ago in worse times than what we have now, women were running the show. Women should be able to run the show. You know, again, there's no, there's no reason not to. So despite how dark this history is, it's also, um, you know, women have been, besting the men at their own game. I mean, this was, this was patriarchy at its most violent um, from the get go. What do you think has, like, I've never heard of these women before. What right? do you think kept them out of history? And, and really this whole saga, right? This is a, this is an epic. So how did this get left out? Well, I think there was a really systematic smear campaign that started right after both of their deaths. And, um, continued on. So it's not so much an issue of women being forgotten as women being purposely sidelined right from the get-go. Um, so I can give you numerous examples, but even a, you know, a couple years after Brunhild's death, her successor goes through and removes her entire branch of the, you know, of the family from any notice. So of tolls, of very minor things. So this would be like erasing, for example, a president um, of just saying, you know, nothing ever happened in that term. We're not, we're not mentioning that person's name. They passed no laws. Nothing, nothing happened in that period of time. Um, and that's immediately thereafter. And then the dynasty that took over after both of these women ruled had some issues from the get-go with women holding them off. I mean, Charles Martel, who was, as we know, one of the ancestors of Charlemagne, was held off by a woman. And that was pretty, you know, pretty embarrassing. And they certainly did not want to I say give any more ammunition to this idea, there were a lot of women that were following in the queen's footsteps, attempting to be regents, and the patriarchy was stomping them out, you know, as, as quickly as they could. 
So as that was happening, you also can trace through the historical chronicles, which was really fascinating and see how they're changing the story, how they're manipulating it, how the chroniclers are going in, adding stuff, taking stuff out. They're adding prophecies in that say these women were doomed from the get-go and anyone who follows in their footsteps, these horrible things are going to happen. Then they're starting to lay at their feet the destruction of, you know, basically all of Western Europe. So people were, this was a very, a very like deliberate campaign. So I think that's part of the reason why. And what little we do get has kind of been cast as either this sort of cat fight or they've both been cast as kind of mothers, you know, whether that's just like really overly ambitious mothers, but let's put them in that category because that's safe. So you must have uncovered so much research in this process. And I can tell just by the, you know, rattling off the different editions of their story that you've, you've uncovered. I am always thinking about how to, okay, so they have been erased. How do we put them back in? And part of, I think, history instruction is, is also helping students understand how history is made and how people can get left out. And I think it would be really cool to have some of those versions of her story, their story from different times to show the, the eraser over time. That would be really a neat way to do that in a classroom. You taught literature for a while. And so I'm curious, where do you see this story belonging or fitting in a K-12 uh, humanities curriculum? Well, I think there's a lot of um, potential ways to approach it. One is just the larger question of like, what does historical justice look like? Like what you were just saying. And I think that ties into so much, whether that's the monuments debate um, from today or just all of these, these figures talking about who gets to be privileged in the public sphere. You know, despite how long you've ruled or how much you've accomplished, you can still have your face essentially kind of scratched out of the record. So I think they can work in that sense of as a, a warning, a warning sign, I think, it's also really fascinating to see how marginalized people still manage to pass their stories on because no one thinks they know these queens, but yet we all do. So, for example, the way I came to these queens was in a party city costume store in the aisle looking for, you know, a quick Halloween costume with the horned Viking helmet with the two braids, right? That's like an image that we're all familiar with. And that comes from the Queens, but it's been buried underground. So I think it's really fascinating for students, for example, whether it's with these historical figures or others, and I could give numerous examples of, of how they've lived on, but to look for in sort of the ordinary, the everyday pop culture literature, where are these hidden figures? Where else can we find them? So for example, these Queens aren't just in opera, but we find them in Shakespeare's Beth, we find them in fairy tales, in folklore, in Norse legends. So I think that's also a really fascinating way to kind of approach how, despite sometimes the best efforts to erase certain people or certain accomplishments, sometimes bits of the story are still still managed to wriggle through. Still with us. I love that you found it in a costume store. That's amazing. <laughs> I um, You told me earlier that you taught this to middle schoolers. And we find that people are resistant to teaching dark topics like this to younger students. How did that go when you taught middle school or what grade in middle school? It was actually like a combination. So there were some six and six, seventh and eighth graders. I believe there are a few eighth graders in the bunch. They kind of did a combination and they were learning 
about the Franks and Charles Martel and, and we're going through that period of history. And um, the teachers allowed me to come in and do a PowerPoint presentation for, for a period. And um, at least from my perspective, they were really engaged. They asked some great questions. I think that students are a lot smarter than sometimes we give them credit for. And that most of the history that they've learned since they were very young, we forget that that's already pretty dark and bloody, whether that's the French Revolution, the American Revolution. We teach kids a lot about war. So they seem to take this in stride that this was just a particularly, you know, uh, dark period of time in our history that was extremely blood soaked. And they were more engaged with the personalities involved rather than kind of bogged down in, um, being scared of that time period. And they were, they had a lot of good questions just too about sort of the day-to-day life. Like how did people manage in such a dark time? So they had a lot of fun with it. I was actually really surprised um, at how well they took to this, given that it's such an unfamiliar period for most of them. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely very impressed that middle schoolers, I mean, I don't teach middle school, so I, I'm always very impressed at what teachers are able to do. That's so awesome. So um, your book is coming out this winter. It is just in time for Women's History Month in um, March of 2022. So it'll be out February 22nd, 2022. That sounds like a futuristic date, like 2022. That's wild. I'm so excited. So where can people find the book? Um, well, I'll make sure to share links to Bookshop or Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your favorite indie neighborhood bookstore, but it's out with Bloomsbury in the U.S. and it'll be out in April um, in the U.K. with uh, Head of Zeus. Um, and it'll also be coming out in the future in both France and Estonia. So that's pretty exciting, too. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. That's so exciting. I'm so excited. Well, we will put the links in our show notes for everybody to have access to so they can go track down your book and read everything. This is such a cool topic. And I think so important to get into our curriculum to undo the intentional erasure of these women. Thank you so much for having me, Kelsey. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.